For decades, the kids thought the mixture was deadly. To this day, some are still afraid to try it. But what really happens when you consume soda after eating Pop Rocks? If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more urban legends, check out our Haunted Places feed on Spotify. There you'll find exclusive episodes of Urban Legends every Tuesday. In the meantime, enjoy this episode. Due to the graphic nature of this urban legend, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of harm against minors and some gruesome imagery. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. There's no way he actually died. There would have been a hashtag, Pop Rocks Don't Rock, something like that. Sophie's just messing with you. She's always messing with you. So you place the candy in your mouth. It fizzes and pops, dancing on your tongue. The soda comes next. The delicious cold cola trickles down your throat, taking the bubbling sugar with it. But it doesn't stay down. You burp once, then again. Your stomach churns. It has to be your imagination, right? It's the last thought that enters your mind before you explode. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Today's episode is part of our Urban Legends series. Every Tuesday, we explore those chilling stories you hear secondhand, the kind that seem made up but contain a kernel of truth. Urban Legends is only on Spotify, so keep listening here to never miss an episode. But don't forget to come back each Thursday for a classic episode of Haunted Places, covering yet another ghost-filled locale. You can find episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Today, we explore one of the most specific urban legends you've ever heard of, and likely the only one that inspired a Green Day song. Featuring a licensed trademark, a commercial child actor, and ominous but questionable chemistry, the rumor of the exploding kid is still passed on to this day. In just a moment, we'll go back to the world of 1970s television commercials, where this shocking rumor began. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. 
feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. If you grew up in the 1970s, you knew that Mikey liked Life Cereal. The commercial first aired in 1972, starring a pint-sized picky eater who became an instant convert to Life's brand of breakfast goodness. Mikey likes it, his siblings would crow. But by 1975, Mikey was dead. He'd mixed Coca-Cola with Pop Rocks, a new candy from General Foods, and he lost his life. To use a very insensitive pun, frequently heard on playgrounds around the United States, or so the legend went. But the truth was more complicated, and somehow, even stranger. They found him in pieces, small chunks of pink flesh splattered across the floor, like spilled fruit punch. There weren't enough pieces of him to sew things back together for appearance's sake, so the casket was closed. Mortars paid their respect to the curved wood, letting their fingertips linger reverently on the polished timber, as though they were touching Steve. Joey and Ryder weren't allowed to touch the coffin. They were barely allowed to be in the room. Their mother had slid them into the back seats of the funeral home and pushed brand new Game Boys into their hands. She told them to have respect for the rest of the family and went to go speak with Grandma. The two boys turned towards each other. They knew grief. Steve was their big brother. They'd been the ones to find him. Joey had tripped on what was left of him as he headed into the kitchen for a glass of milk. His screams had carried through the small wood-paneled kitchen. His mother rushed into the room, nearly tripping herself. He'd watched her collapse into herself as she started to cry. Joey hadn't cried. Neither had Ryder. It didn't make sense to them yet. Maybe it never would. They stared at the empty top bunk of their room, waiting for Steve to poke his head down. They'd outgrown the tight quarters several years ago, but there just wasn't room in the house for them to ever really be apart. Here in this cavernous hall that smelled like blood orchids, Steve's death didn't feel real. He couldn't be in the closed casket. It was more than likely that some of them just ended up in the trash bin. The batteries in the Game Boy died. The pixels on the screen froze just before disintegrating. Joey wondered why it hurt more to watch the screen go blank than it had to watch his relatives gather around the polished wood. He knew that it would take time for it to sink in, but it was the confusion that kept him up at night. People didn't just explode and Steve wouldn't have swallowed a handful of cherry bombs. The medical examiner had been perplexed. They spent days with the remains, but never came up with an answer. Each family member was interviewed individually by the police. They asked all kinds of strange questions. What chemicals were used in the house? Did Steve pay attention during D.A.R.E. class? Was it possible that he had a copy of the anarchist's cookbook lying around? Joey knew his brother wasn't an anarchist, and he wouldn't read anything with the word cookbook on the front, even if it was a guide to crafting homemade bombs. 
Ryder had been paler than Steve after he came out of his own interrogation. Joey told him not to sweat it. The cops just wanted an easy answer, and none of this was easy. But Ryder's unease did not go away. He jumped every time he heard a noise. He never talked anymore. He just stared at the walls, counting the stripes in the pale blue paper. Joey's mother said that grief took different forms. Maybe that's why she thought a handheld gaming device was appropriate for a funeral. She didn't have the energy to be around them right now. Joey would laugh at something and she would cry. She wasn't looking at him, not really. She was seeing echoes of Steve. He haunted all of them. He was there in the boys' shared expressions. He was there in Joey's sudden aversion to any food item that reminded him of what they'd lost. Small squares became frightening, even when it was cereal. Anything chunky and pink made him want to gag. Even his mother's homemade strawberry ice cream. Joey was zoning in and out of the funeral. He didn't have any interest in watching people pretend to know his brother. Ryder sat ramrod straight, his lips moving, but Joey couldn't quite catch the words. Timid green eyes turned towards Joey again. Joey asked if Ryder wanted to give him the batteries and the other Game Boy. Ryder stammered out a handful of words, but he was mumbling. Their conversation was cut off by a scream that ripped through the entire venue. Their mother was climbing on top of the coffin. Her fingernails dug into the wood as she screamed for God to give her back her son. Both boys jumped up from their seats. They ran straight for the coffin, grabbing their mother's arms and pulling her away. Her eyes were wild. She fought back, arms and legs kicking out at her sons. Joey took as many blows as he could, reminding himself that this was her way of grieving. Their mother smacked her head against Joey's and he staggered backwards. He let go, giving up as she ran back toward the casket. The heavy mahogany lid popped open. That wasn't supposed to happen. Joey had asked the funeral director if it was possible for a coffin lid to open by accident. And the man had said no. It was nearly impossible. But the lid was open. And Joey's mother was scooping up the moist and now almost papery thin remains of her son into her arms, as though hugging them to her chest would bring him back to life. Joey fought a wave of nausea as the moldy, gruesome smell lingered with the heavy floral perfume of the funeral home. He took one step toward his mother and felt his foot slide. A small piece of Steve clung to his heel, dropped from his mother's arms. The funeral paused for cleanup. The boy's father got them settled down again in the back thanking them for trying to help. Then he went back to their mother, gently rubbing the small of her back as their grandmother wiped her forearms with wet tissues. Joey asked Ryder to repeat what he'd said before the mess had begun with the coffin. Ryder swallowed. He turned his face away, but his words were clear this time. He told Joey that he knew why Steve died. It had been his fault. Joey laughed. There was no way that Ryder could have done anything. This was just guilt. Ryder was 11. The kid couldn't even squash a spider. There was no way he had anything to do with Steve's stomach exploding like a cannon filled with skin confetti. Ryder insisted that it was his fault. 
He'd been scared, and Steve had been willing to show him that there was nothing to be afraid of. But in the end, Ryder was right. Joey sat up straighter in his chair. That did sound more like his younger brother. Ryder was scared of everything. It was possible that Steve had helped him with some strangely specific phobia. But what kind of fear made people explode? Ryder didn't want to say. He just wanted Joey to know that it was his fault. He'd seen Steve explode. Pieces of Steve had clung to his t-shirt. He'd thrown it in the neighbor's trash can rather than try to wash it. He had been in shock. He didn't, couldn't tell their mother what happened. So we went back up to bed. He pretended to be asleep. Ryder had heard Joey wake up, and he counted down until his brother discovered the remains on the floor. Rocky waves of emotion swept over Joey. Rage, sadness, sympathy. But none of it made sense. He asked Ryder to promise to tell him what had happened when they got home. Ryder agreed and handed his brother the batteries for his Game Boy. Coming up, Ryder tells his brother the horrible truth. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. Joey sat on his small twin bed, watching Ryder stare up at the bunk bed where their other brother was supposed to be. It was the highest, even though Steve weighed the most. He'd always been the most daring of the three. If Ryder was to be believed, it was that same fearlessness that led to Steve's strange death. An explanation for a freak accident that had left their brother in pieces on the kitchen floor. But Ryder had a streak of hyperbole in him. His stories were never quite reliable. Joey waited in the silence. He didn't want to push Ryder into telling his version of events. It needed to come naturally. Joey struggled with the waiting. The silence was too much in a room that was usually filled with laughter and playful taunts. All sound had left the room when Steve died. Joey wasn't sure that he'd ever see his mother laugh again. Deep scratches ran up and down his arms from where she clawed at him, resisting his efforts to pull her away from his brother's coffin. Their dad had picked up the fallen pieces of his son and convinced mom to put him back. A thick gel of coagulated blood smeared across her face as she wiped at her tears. 
The mortars had pretended that there was nothing out of the ordinary here, and Joey couldn't decide if he appreciated that or hated them all. They'd rode back to the house in silence, and he headed back up to the room he shared with his brothers. No, just with Ryder now. Now he was waiting, waiting for the truth, waiting for his mother to remember that there were still two other boys here who needed her, waiting for the tears to eventually come as the loss of Steve truly sank in, waiting for meaning in a world that didn't seem to have any. Ryder took a deep breath. He opened his mouth, then closed it almost immediately. His eyebrow furrowed as he stared hard at the bunk bed, as if it would have the answers he was struggling to give. There was a new challenge that was taking Ryder's entire middle school by storm. By mixing a few household ingredients, you could get a potent but legal thrill. Your parents would never know you'd done anything wrong, as long as things went according to plan. Joey already had mixed feelings about where this story was going. His brother didn't need a legal high. He didn't have enough brain cells as it was. Ryder gave Joey an annoyed look and kept going. If things didn't go according to plan, the consequences could be deadly. A famous child actor had died by overdoing it decades ago. As it worked its way through the boy's system, he complained of a pained stomach. He was rushed to the hospital for appendicitis, but before he could make it to the operating room, tragedy struck. The actor's stomach exploded. It took weeks to clean up all the bits of flesh that had been scattered across the hospital hallway. One nurse claimed that she'd accidentally swallowed a piece of him. Joey didn't know how much of this he believed. An exploding actor would have made national headlines. Ryer shook his head solemnly. It would have if they weren't trying to cover it up. They had the resources to hide it. Joey asked who they was. If this was something that children were getting into, it couldn't possibly be some secret government agency or something. Ryder thought for a moment before answering. They were the manufacturers of the product. No one would buy it if they knew it could kill you. Joey wanted to refute the point. There were plenty of products on the market that could hurt you if misused. Bleach, cigarettes, antifreeze. But Joey kept his mouth shut. He wanted to hear where Ryder was going with this. Ryder had tried to fight his impulses for as long as possible. He told everyone at school that he'd already mixed the stuff and survived. No one believed him. He didn't really want to try it. Nothing was scarier than the idea of never existing again. But it made sense that they didn't believe him. Ryder was a scaredy cat. They all knew it. They would accept nothing less than video proof. He didn't know what to do. So Ryder talked to Steve. He told him the story. Steve laughed, full bent over, hand on his chest, laughed. He apologized when he saw Ryder was on the verge of tears. Steve had knelt down and promised Ryder that it really wasn't that bad. He'd do it first, then Ryder could do it after him. They'd take pictures for proof. Steve had told Ryder that it was best that they carried out their plan in the middle of the night. If something bad happened, no one would get in trouble. Ryder had agreed, sneaking downstairs at midnight to wait for his brother. He was already in the kitchen. He ripped open the bag of popping candy and swallowed a mouthful. They made a crackling noise that Ryder could still hear a few feet away. 
Ryder went to grab his own packet, but Steve stopped him. He told Ryder to watch him do it first. He didn't want his baby brother going to the hospital for a panic attack. Steve swallowed another mouthful of the popping candy and washed it down with soda. Stray pops came from Steve as the candy floated down his esophagus. He smiled at Ryder as he swallowed and told him there was nothing to it. As he could see, Steve was perfectly fine. Ryder was already starting to lose his nerve. Sure, his brother had done it, but his brother could do anything. Except, Steve was looking not so great anymore. His smile shrank into a half grimace. Sweat dotted his forehead. He leaned over the counter, resting his elbows on the cold tile. Ryder asked what was wrong. Steve told him it was nothing. He was just feeling a little strange. It was probably just gas. Ryder's head went immediately to the actor. He suggested that they take Steve to the hospital. Steve lifted himself back up and said there was no need for that. He was about to let out the biggest, best burp Ryder had ever heard. He was fine. As though it wanted to disagree, his stomach made a strange, almost retching sound. Steve had taken one staggered step forward to try and pat Ryder on the shoulder. He promised Ryder that he was fine. This would pass. The sound in his stomach got louder. It looked like something might be moving inside Steve. Ryder tried to point it out, but Steve wasn't even looking at him anymore. He was struggling just to stand still. His face turned white and then putrid green. Another rumbling came from Steve's abdomen. Ryder was taking two steps towards the fridge when it happened. A sound like a kid hitting the water after doing a cannonball. Ryder turned around and saw that Steve's entire torso and part of his chest were in pieces. His head lay on the porcelain counter, watching Ryder's every move with still glassy eyes. Joey had his arms around his brother before he realized he'd even moved. He hugged him close, trying to assure him that he couldn't have known. But Ryder was stiff in his arms, gazing upwards. Joey lifted his eyes to find his mother standing on the threshold, having heard the whole thing. From the 1970s to now, parents have been worried about Pop Rocks. Those strange, fizzy candies tend to fizz even further when mixed with sodas like Coke or Pepsi, and protective parents worried about the dangers of the excess gas. Their fears of the mixture's danger grew even stronger when a rumor began to circulate that John Gilchrist, the former child actor who played Mikey in the iconic Mikey Likes It Life cereal commercial, had died after mixing Coke and Pop Rocks. But John Gilchrist did not die in a candy-related freak accident. In fact, he didn't die at all. As of 2014, he was in media sales for sports networks like ESPN and Madison Square Garden. He even ate Pop Rocks when the rumors first began to swirl, telling Thrillist, It wasn't my favorite candy, but I liked it. I knew back then it couldn't kill you. So did my friends, because I was standing right in front of them. The rumors of Gilchrist's demise are easily debunked, but the story of the rise and fall of Pop Rocks is even more explosive than they are. 
It began with a failed experiment in General Foods' Hoboken, New Jersey facility in October 1956. General Foods chemist Bill Mitchell had intended to make a version of Kool-Aid powder that would have carbonation built in. But he couldn't get the carbonation-injected sugar to dissolve the way he planned. The byproduct of the experiment was a pile of colorful sugar pebbles. Mitchell tasted them like the food scientist he was. It presented the strangest sensation he'd ever experienced, popping and fizzing on the tongue, without the liquid feel offered by soda. When he added pineapple flavor to the mixture, his co-workers became obsessed. Anytime their kids had a birthday party, they asked Mitchell to make a batch of what they had begun to call atomic candy. But it was just a lab oddity, an accidental recipe that would gather dust for years, as Mitchell went on to invent Tang and Cool Whip. But then, Mitchell gave a sample of the candy to the new General Foods vice president, Herman Neff. Neff quickly became obsessed and sent the fizzing sugar into product development. General Foods rolled out the candy in test markets in 1974, hoping to release it in waves, beginning in the Midwest. The candy proved so popular that people began driving it to the coasts, selling the contraband at a premium. General Foods realized they had a hit on their hands and needed to capitalize. But the production process had not been designed for the volume the market demanded. The pop rocks were mixed by propellers in giant vessels. Carbon dioxide injected molten sugar was volatile reaching temperatures of 300 degrees Fahrenheit and 600 pounds of pressure. The factory employees wore hazard suits to avoid burns. Once the concoction had cooled and solidified in tubes, the vessels were hit with nine-pound sledgehammers to smash the candy into the iconic bubbly pebbles. Marv Rudolph, a product developer for Pop Rocks in the 70s, believes that the rumor of the candy's danger originated in the Midwest because that's where the calls from concerned parents first came from. Retailers called General Foods, wanting to sell it back. The rumor became concrete when it was supposedly proven by the death of the child actor who played Mikey for Life Serial. John Gilchrist was actually at home in Westchester, New York, but he had disappeared from the public eye, so there wasn't an easy way to disprove the story in the late 1970s. Sales plummeted as the story of Mikey's tragic death spiraled out of control. General Foods called school principals across America, hoping to debunk the myth. But by the second week of 1979, no one wanted Pop Rocks. General Foods published ad campaigns in major newspapers, saying that the candy could induce nothing worse in the human body than a hearty, non-life-threatening belch. They even tried to hire the then 12-year-old John Gilchrist to do an ad for Pop Rocks to reassure people that he was all right. But it presented a conflict with his deal with Life Cereal. Gilchrist has said that his parents wanted to protect him from the disturbing rumors and declined the offer. Pop Rocks were discontinued in 1982. About 300 million pouches of the candy were crushed and buried in landfills, according to Rudolph. General Foods lost a total of 30 to 40 million dollars in the aborted campaign. The brand's disappearance from the market was offered as proof that the candy was too dangerous to sell. But Kraft actually bought the rights from General Foods in 1985 and marketed Pop Rocks as Action Candy, when the trademark was sold to a Spanish company, Zeta Especial. 
they returned to the original packaging, albeit on a much smaller production model. The candy may be back on the market, but the legend persists. There have been several references to it in TV and film, and it's still fretted about on parenting forums. Gilchrist suggests that the legend had resonance because of the cultural attachment to Mikey. He said, People could relate to three kids sitting at a breakfast table and one of them being a finicky eater. They felt like I was that character and that they knew the boy who was hurt. In 2008, Discovery Channel's Mythbusters put the legend to the test, filling a pig's stomach with a six-pack worth of Coke and six pouches of Pop Rocks. Though the bubbling was audible and expansion of the organ was clear, no explosion occurred. But that doesn't mean there isn't precedent for Pop Rocks-related injuries. In 2001, Chris Jans of Alamo, California, sued Baskin-Robbins on behalf of her daughter Fifi, claiming that the five-year-old ate her whole portion of the limited-edition Shrek Swirl flavor, not chewing it thoroughly enough to release the carbon dioxide from the Pop Rocks included in the sherbet. According to Jans, Fifi was hospitalized with a swollen stomach for a stay of two and a half days. Baskin-Robbins responded that there have been absolutely no indication that there are any safety concerns whatsoever with Shrek Swirl. The complaint was dismissed without prejudice on June 9, 2003. The exploding kid is the kind of story that seems like it would make sense. We've all seen those videos of Mentos being dropped in Coca-Cola, causing a dramatic chemical reaction. But the human body has natural, if admittedly rude, ways of handling excess gas. Chugging Coke and Pop Rocks might give you serious indigestion, but it won't kill you. That is, if the company is still using the formula they were using back then. Anything can change behind the closed doors of a laboratory. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all of the podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Until next time, don't believe some of the things you hear. Believe all of them. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache. With writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs> <laughs>